But I think of books as I think of teaching. You have to know who you're talking to. You have to have a concept of what they need, of what they need to learn. And you have to be aiming to help them get from where they are to the next place they need to be on the way to where they should ultimately be. Um, so I see, I see publishing and teaching as, um, as analogous in that regard. You're listening to Crafting Theology, presented by the St. Louis University Department of Theological Studies. On this podcast, we talk to scholars about the key life experiences that shaped the direction of their research. We hope these conversations illuminate both the how and the why of theological studies in a changing world. Hi, I'm Craig Sanders, a PhD student in Christian theology at St. Louis University. And joining me for this episode of Crafting Theology is James Ernest, Vice President and Editor-in-Chief at Erdman's Publishing. James, thank you for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, I've been really impressed with some of the recent titles at Erdman's. Uh, over Christmas, I read The Monk's Record Player <laughs> about the influence of Bob Dylan on Thomas Merton, which is really a fascinating study. Uh, kind of took me on a deep dive of Dylan's music, which I didn't grow up listening to. So uh, that was that was a fruitful weekend. And then uh, Erdman's has also released several of Fleming Rutledge's sermon collections, which have been uh, beneficial for me. So what are you most excited about coming up for Erdman's in 2019? Well, you just mentioned Fleming Rutledge, so since her name is in the air, our... Um um, we're working on another another book with her, which will be um, much smaller. But um, a number of years ago, she did a she did a seven last words with us, and we have another one of those coming out. Another set of, of sermons that she she did. Um, we have um, we have such a broad publishing program that there are always commentaries and monographs and all sorts of. Um, all sorts of interesting things in the pipeline. Great. Yeah, I, when our Advent collection came out, I saw it at the Evangelical Theological Society conference, and I uh, was preaching an Advent sermon a couple weeks later, and it was back-ordered for weeks. Uh, so I was thankfully able to track down, like, a library copy in time to to work on my sermon. But it was just really fascinating and really great that you're coming out with those. So, uh, But going back to the Monk's record player, what are— you listening to in the season that may be inspiring you in some way? Uh, listening to, I go off and on with audiobooks. There, there are seasons when I'm always listening to an audiobook. Right now, I've gone back to old-timey paper, so <laughs> I'm, uh, I've been listening to a number of things over the past year that are pertinent to questions about um, our political culture and and the way um, the way values, including theological values, sometimes um, impinge on our perceptions and actions in the in the political arena. Yeah. So the reason you're on campus this week, we're talking about careers in publishing for graduate students in theology. Now, you earned your PhD from Boston College, writing on Athanasius and his use of Scripture. What led you to study Athanasius? When I went to Boston College, I had significant background in New Testament studies because of the work that I had done as, in my MDiv program, and I was interested in, in, in Bible, but I had also 
done at Boston University, a master's degree in classical studies. And I was interested in moving into uh, the early Christian writers beyond the New Testament. So I was interested in uh, patristics, as a patristic theology, and in history of early Christian literature. I took a course, which was a, a seminar on Athanasius with Father Brian Daly and, um, and, and, and Professor Lloyd Patterson, and became interested in Athanasius. And when it was time to define a dissertation topic, it seemed that doing something in patristic biblical interpretation might be a good idea for me because patristic literature is such a is such an ocean and I needed a I needed an edge of the pool to hang on to so I thought sticking close to uh, biblical interpretation would at least keep me from becoming completely disoriented <laughs> yeah so I uh, one of my favorite accounts of Athanasius is from GK Chesterton in his book, The Everlasting Man. And he has this wonderful reflection where he talks about God's love in the context of Trinitarian community. He writes, quote, the truth is that the trumpet of true Christianity, the challenge of the charities and simplicities of Bethlehem or Christmas Day, never rang out more arrestingly and unmistakably than in the defiance of Athanasius to the cold compromise of the Arians. It was emphatically he who really was fighting for a God of love against a God of colorless and remote cosmic control. I just think it's a beautiful reflection, and I think this quote reminds readers at a popular level of the importance of early tradition. And as you've studied Athanasius, what's one of your more favorite stories or even your favorite passage from his writings? Well, I think that Athanasius is... Um is known largely for the thing that you that you mentioned, where he's you know the sort of Athanasius contramundum portrait mm -hmm. of the steadfast Athanasius holding firm against the the heretics is um is is the way is the way he's largely remembered at least popularly to the extent that he's remembered popularly. Um, I read for the first time when I was doing my dissertation and really loved some of uh, some of the more pastoral writings. Mm -hmm and some of the writings that get classified as monastic or ascetical writings, uh, the letter to Marcellinus on the, mm -hmm. on the interpretation of the Psalms, or really on how to use the Psalms in, in Christian life, or his letters in reply to various monks who asked him about practical problems in their life and the, uh, the advice that he gave back to them. It turns out, I think, that Athanasius was really in his element doing that sort of thing. What he really wanted to do was to uh, be a be a pastor to the Egyptian Christian community, and he undertook his doctrinal hagglings and warrings with other parties because it was his perception that if you did not preserve an adequate understanding of how the word relates to the Father, you were left with nothing that would help you in terms of um, your salvation on a on a on a practical day-to-day -day level or, um, or more, more generally. Now, you've grown up in a lot of evangelical circles and Protestant churches. Uh, your Erdman's works with some of similar contexts. And you, I guess you oversee the publication of biblical commentaries. So when you're looking at Athanasius, what are elements of patristic exegesis that you see lacking today that really need to be retrieved? Well, today it's... 
an ongoing conversation has to do with theological interpretation, especially in the evangelical world um, and in the sort of confessional mainline world. But uh, and and in the, on, on the Catholic side, they I don't think they believe that theological interpretation was ever some ever something that was lost uh, and needs to be regained. Although. Um, although the 20th century situation is complex. From my reading of Athanasius, it's, it's clear that for him, interpretation of the Bible was always, it was always theological and moral and spiritual. And uh, so it's a little bit perplexing to see evangelicals, especially these days, struggling to, struggling to grasp the concept of what theological interpretation as opposed to some other kind of interpretation might mean. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I remember even in seminary, it was a contentious issue at, in a Southern Baptist seminary of the question of theological interpretation um, and the seeming implication that it wasn't taking uh, the Bible literally or wasn't taking it as seriously as as other forms of evangelical exegesis. Um, so what would you, I mean, what would you say to kind of counter those concerns from more conservative evangelicals who aren't sure what to make of that term? It's ironic, I think, that evangelicals became so enamored of historical, grammatical historical or historical critical reading of Scripture when in the, in the long tradition of the church, um, reading the Bible theologically n- never meant reading the Bible literally in quite the same way that certain rationalistic forms of of uh, fundamentalist or or neo-evangelical hermeneutics seem to require. Hmm. Now, as someone who grew up in the church, you obviously encountered the Bible at a young age. So I guess what are your earliest memories of encountering the Bible, and how has reading Athanasius kind of transformed your, appro- your approach personally to reading the Scriptures? Uh, yeah. Well, you're right. I was raised in... Um, in the church, my parents uh, read us Bible stories from the time I was little, and then in my uh, Presbyterian congregation in Virginia, uh, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday evening, the pastor, who was a wonderful man, um, just laid the Bible on us thick uh, week week after week, and it was uh, it was actually kind of wonderful. I have warm memories of of that. I think what I've I think what I've picked up. From from Athanasius is a couple of things. One is that um, despite the ways in which I sort of was introduced to doctrine and became interested in doctrine and then sort of lost interest in some of the doctrinal wrangling that I encountered, um, you can't read Athanasius without really being struck by the absolute seriousness with which he takes certain doctrinal concepts. Um, And it's it's not because he liked arguing about doctrinal concepts. It's because they do have consequences. Mm -hmm. Uh, They do have practical, moral, spiritual uh, consequences. So that's one thing that I got from him. The other thing that I pick up from him is that he not only uses the Bible doctrinally, but for him, the Bible is kind of like uh, the handrail Whatever stairs he's going up or down or sidewalk he's moving along, he's he's always sort of he's always got his hand on or else reaches out to reaches out to grab every once in a while, 
biblical, biblical passages. He knows the Bible really well. He has this wealth of biblical, um, biblical texts in his head, so he can, he can use the Bible for, for doctrinal argumentation, but he can also use the Bible just for sort of analogies. You know, mm. this is like that. Um, um, finding himself by comparing himself to particular characters, comparing other people to characters in particular biblical narratives. So you, you learn one thing from Athanasius that you learn is that the Bible is just a, a very good sort of companion in a lot of different ways for whatever mode of discourse you find yourself involved in. Reading Athanasius and learning to take seriously what he did was a little bit liberating for me because I learned biblical interpretation and biblical hermeneutics from some really very fine people, uh, but they put me off somewhat from anything that would seem allegorical, mm -hmm. and I think you really lose a lot when you lose the ability to sort of take a, take a scene from scripture and just apply it to your own life or to find yourself in that scene without the intermediate step mm -hmm. of determining that the intention of the author and the original setting was that you should do so. <laughs> Yeah. So you also uh, teach at Calvin College as well as your publishing role. Uh, what are some common characteristics of teaching and your role as an editor-in-chief that, that how they've kind of nurtured each other in your teaching and your publishing roles? The first several years of my time at Grand Rapids, I did teach for Calvin Seminary. They had a seminar in fourth century theology that, uh, that, I, that I taught for them several times. And then I think once a, a, a course for, the, that was for their PhD students, for their MA students, a course in um, historical theology. Um, I, think, I think I did, I think we did soteriology. Um, I haven't done that the last several years. Um, what I found was that it is very hard for me after a while, it became difficult for me to really keep up my full-time work in publishing while also doing the constant reading that I think is required if you're going to be teaching doctoral students. Mm. Um, when the moment came that I was teaching the, teaching the fourth century seminar again and I stopped and thought, I could right now name five or six monographs that I, I would say anybody who's doing this should have read, and I haven't read them because I, my life is too busy. So um, in a way, I think it would be better for me if I, were, if I were teaching undergraduates. I do have a colleague at Erdman's who teaches undergraduate Bible courses. And it's, it's not that that's easier or less demanding, but it, it doesn't require the same amount of constant keeping up with the latest, the latest, the latest literature. But I think, of, I think of publishing in pedagogical terms. Um, Erdman's publishes books that are all over the map theologically in terms of theological orientation, denominational affiliation, uh, the sort of standard left-right things that you would think of. Um, but I think of books as I think of teaching. You have to know who you're talking to. You have to have a concept of what they need, of what they need to learn and you have to be aiming to help them get from where they are to the next place they need to be on the way to where they should ultimately be. 
Um, so I see, I see publishing and teaching as, um, as analogous in that regard. Hmm. And you've been in publishing for almost 30 years, is that correct? Uh, well, yeah, one way or another. Okay. So I guess over the decades, have you seen the state of writing or the quality of writing that you get from uh, authors declining? Have you, have you seen it, it? How have you seen the, the landscape of writing uh, for Erdman's changing over the last several decades? Yeah, I wouldn't say I've seen a decline. I've, I've been at Erdman's for three and a half years. I was at Baker Publishing Group for 13 years before that, at Hendrickson Publishers before that. I worked for an educational publisher briefly mm. um, before that. Um, in my book publishing jobs, I would say that what I experience as an editor in terms of the writing that I get from authors is purely individual rather mm. than a rather than a matter of trends. Every author is different. There are authors who just use the English language beautifully, mm. just beautifully. Um, we have you have there are there are a few theologians who are also prose poets, um, and others others struggle. So. Um, you know, dangling, dangling modifiers and, mm -hmm. and all kinds of things that have to be fixed. It doesn't mean that they don't have good ideas or aren't worth publishing, mm -hmm. but it is a joy to work with the ones who are really good writers. Yeah, it's something I've been curious about because you hear these uh, people lamenting over the state of writing because of texting and technology and all the ways that, that people can kind of go over or, or through editors and be their own gatekeepers with blogging. And so... I've just always been curious if, if those actually publishing uh, a lot of works have seen any change at all over, uh, on average in the quality of writing. I would say that the challenge for the sorts of authors that, that I've worked with is not, is not that they have become so used to texting that they've, that they've forgotten how to write. Mm -hmm. Many of them are some of the least technically literate people, you know, some of them, some of them don't like to use texting mm -hmm. anyway. The, the, the large challenge for people doing the sort of writing that we publish is that they have been formed or malformed, deformed sometimes in their writing habits by the experience of producing a dissertation. Mm -hmm. uh, in writing a dissertation, um, you know that you're writing for a very small audience of professors who want to see your technical technical proficiency, you have to impress people by all of the obscure sources that you can cite, the strange languages in which you can cite them, um, the piles of other things that you can throw in is also things that you're aware of but just have chosen not to go into in depth at this point. Um, all, of those, all of those things that you really sort of have to learn to write a disserta dissertation are um, are pernicious influences on the kind of writing that people outside of a dissertation committee want to read. Yeah, that was really behind the direction of my questions, is just seeing in academia, sometimes I've wondered if, if to maintain my writing form, I should have avoided this altogether, because it seems that there's, a, there's something about the process that, that you have to find ways to, um, to still write to a more general audience in spite of the constraints of academia. So how would you encourage uh, those in academia now to uh, to improve on their craft in writing. When I was working for Hendrickson Publishers, one of my colleagues was John Kutzko, who's now executive director of the Society of Biblical Literature, 
and I was, he and I were both under the gun. We were both trying to write our dissertations while doing full-time publishing work, mm -hmm. and it was not easy. Um, he referred once to something he was reading. I can't remember what it was. It was a novel, fiction. And I said, John, how on earth are you reading a novel? He said, well, one of my professors told me um, that he would never try to write anything without also being in the course of reading good literature at the same time. Hmm. So one, one thing that I think might be a fun piece of advice for for people who are getting a start in teaching and writing, academic writing, would be just sort of give yourself permission to to always be reading some good fiction, and if you if you can do it, uh, you know, if, good poetry, even mm -hmm. you know, just let yourself be always awash in some in some really fluent and uh, and effective language. Mm -hmm. It it can it can have an effect on the way you do your own writing. I mean, I think Fleming Rutledge is a great example. I mean, in her in her sermons and her writings, she's often referencing Auden and all these great poets, and I think that probably informs even the character of her her own writings. Yeah, uh, Fleming Rutledge is a great example. She's she's also a preacher, mm -hmm. and um, really effective preachers learn how to use language effective orally. I think one thing that people who are writing don't think of sometimes is the fact that if you imagine yourself presenting your text orally, um, you can find ways in which you could really, really smooth it out. Mm. Uh, one of my one of my favorite authors is uh, is Dale Allison, a New Testament mm. scholar. He told me once that when he's uh, giving certain kinds of presentations. I don't think necessarily every kind of conference paper, but other kinds of presentations. He will actually write in blank verse, and um, and then when he then when he delivers it, he's not trying to read it as if as if as if he's reading lines of poetry. But if you're even watching the if you're watching the flow of long and short syllables, even for someone who's reading your text rather than listening to you deliver it. I think you present a more welcoming and comprehensible reading experience if you're attentive to the language, even on that detail, level of detail. Well, it's even more memorable. I mean, with Dell Allison, I mean, there are, there are passages from his studies in Matthew book that have stayed with me for years, mm -hmm. uh, and I haven't even gone back to the book in a while, but you know, I, I read the book six years ago. I can recall several passages that are just really arresting in how he uses the language. So. I think that that really makes sense, and it, it's like you can see the the scholars who who model that by how well you remember them down the road, yeah. rather than the ones that just kind of you forget about. Mm -hmm. So uh, now, since you're a theologian with ties to higher education, you're leading a publishing house. It's during a period in our culture where all three of those fields are challenged as to their importance. Um, and I think you're somewhat optimistic just based on the answers to these other questions. So what, where do you find hope for the future in tumultuous times in the landscapes of higher education and publishing? Uh, the times are tumultuous. Um, at Erdman's and at other presses like ours, we are publishing largely for the church, the church-related academy. And um, <clears throat> the, church is, the church is challenged. Uh, the 
the secularization of our of our culture, the uh, the the alarming level at which young people are abandoning uh, abandoning in the church, or not just abandoning it, but abandoning and then not coming back, mm-hmm. which is different. Um, places pressure on on Christian seminaries and universities, on theological seminaries, and on publishing houses, because those are those are the people that we're publishing for. I think what we have to do much more carefully is to pay attention to um, who we're serving. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, ultimately, I, we would say we're serving God, whether, whether you're a, an educational institution or a publisher that's publishing theological books. But more proximally, you're serving the reader if you're a publisher. And if, you, if you're an author or a publishing company or, a, or an editor who forgets that you're serving readers, and not just in the abstract, but that you're serving particular readers, this reader and that reader and the other reader, then um, if you forget that, you, you, you're, you're at risk of, of offering a service or producing a product that no one is going to want or be able to use or that not enough people are going to want or be able to use. So I think in publishing, we have to just really pay attention to what is vital, what is... Um, what are the sign? Where are the signs of vitality? Where are the signs of need? Who are the Who are the authors that you can tap to address to address those needs? Um, for us as a publisher, that means sometimes these days, just really paying attention to the cultural issues where theology and life intersect, mm. and looking for authors to address those topics. Um, because that will help us as a publisher to sell books, but it also will help people out there in reader land to realize, to remember, that actually theology, Bible, and so on are resources that can help them think about and deal with problems in our culture. Yeah, I think that's helpful. I mean, when you think about our listeners who may be you know, in a graduate program or they're on faculty, you know, there are pressures within the academy to publish academic monographs. Mm-hmm. Um, so how would you kind of use that message to encourage them to think more broadly about their writing and encourage them to, to kind of think more about the audience they serve, not just within the academy, but hopefully for the church? Yeah, well, to different degrees. Um, there are scholars who should continue to do high scholarship and never worry about a popular readership. And our company, Erdman's, and, and, and others I, I know um, to various degrees, want to keep publishing a certain number of books like that, mm-hmm. books that will really advance the, um, advance the state of the field in, in, in particular scholarly questions. Now, for a company like ours, it's more likely to be um, more broadly applicable questions than really particular, Mm -hmm. focused, obscure questions. So for some authors, I don't want them to, um, I don't want them to necessarily try to become more popular. Mm -hmm. But one of the things that I've been doing um, over pretty much the whole time that I've been working in, in theological book publishing is trying to locate the scholars who are beyond the point where they have to they have to write something like a habilitationsschrift just to prove themselves to get 
there, there are there are younger scholars do have to sort of establish themselves with their dean and their tenure committee and maybe trying to get promoted or get hired to a more viable job somewhere else. I understand that. And there are times when we can collaborate with such people. But when, when you have people who are really good, who have been teaching effectively for a long number of years, and who have been, in their writing, um, producing more technical works, I like to sit down with them and say, what are the things that you've been teaching effectively for 20 years? And it won't, it, won't, it won't occur to them to mention those things when they start talking with you about, about what they would like to do in a book. Mm. The, the next book is, is always going to be another more technical thing. But with some of them, if they have the communication skills, if they have the sort of ability to, uh, to address, to, to respond to people on the level of their college students or their seminary students, then they quite possibly also have the ability to write a book that will effectively address that sort of readership. And, uh, and that's, that's going to be a little bit more popular than their technical writing. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Please subscribe to Crafting Theology on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And please leave us a review. This podcast was produced and edited by Craig Sanders and Mitchell Stevens of the SLU Theology Digital Communications Team. For more information on the St. Louis University Department of Theological Studies programs and faculty, visit our website, slu.edu theology.